Welcome to the first episode of Business Law Focus, your go-to source for breaking legal news that matters for businesses, entrepreneurs, the C-suite and professionals. I'm your host Evan Peckworth, editor of Business Day Law and Tax, and today we're discussing an important recent ruling by the Constitutional Court. This ruling provides much-needed clarity on the powers of a court to strike down or refuse a contract. One glance at the news today shows how important a topic this is. It's a pleasure to welcome Michael Katz, chairperson of ENS Africa and of course of the Katz Commission fame, which played such an integral role in reforming SA's tax system following the birth of democracy in 1994. He's joined by ENS Africa executives, Professor Dale Hutchinson and Julius Oersthuizen. Thanks for joining us, gentlemen, for the first in a series of Business Day Law and Tax podcasts. Now, you've done some really interesting analysis of the recent Oregon Trust or Bideke contractual ruling by the Constitutional Court. Is it fair to say it is now harder for someone to get out of a contract because it is not fair or unreasonable or unduly harsh? There has, of course, been a lot of uncertainty and controversy over this in the past, giving the C-suite grey hairs. I think the um, judgment, the uh, virtue of the judgment to me is twofold. It does now place in a proper perspective the role of public policy in contracts and secondly it eliminates the uh, so to say uncertainty of a um, uh, um, apparent inconsistency between the Constitutional Court and the Supreme Court of Appeal. And that perceived um, division uh, was giving rise to problems. And I think now from the point of view of the practitioner, it does eliminate that concern. Uh, a little later in this discussion, Evan, I'm going to come back to the extent to which uncertainty still exists, not from the point of view of what the law is, but how to apply it, because at the end of the day, it is subjective for the court. So we can deal with the principles, but towards the end of this discussion, I want to revert to the uncertainty in applying the law. Brilliant. Thanks, Michael. The Bank of Lisbon case back in 1988 effectively ruled out bad faith, known as Escepto Doli, as a defense for being too broad, right? So, so how is this really different? Well, the, if I can answer that, the old Escepto Doli was like a very technical defense from Roman law, and its status in our law had always been uncertain. So when the, when the court threw out that decision, that remedy in our law, uh, the, suggest, the thought was at the time that it was throwing out all concern for fairness in contract. But in fact, it was barely six months later in the case of Sassen versus Bukas at the same court with different judges sitting, said that uh, no, they struck down an agreement as being unconscionable and said that public policy is concerned not only with 
sanctity of contract, but with what they described as simple justice between man and man. And that set off a long debate thereafter about the role of fairness and good faith in our law of contract. Thanks, Dale. I think that that sums it up very well. But this case was specific to a lease uh, with a BEE entity, right? Would it still have had force for other contracts? Or still have force for other contracts? Yes, undoubtedly. It it lays down a general approach to contract, and uh, it's not specific to lease in any way. It is tacking head-on this question, which has vexed our law for a long time is what precisely is the role of these notions of these open-ended values of good faith, fairness, justice, reasonableness, all summed up these days as Ubuntu in our law of contract. Now, one look at the news shows billions of rand in corrupt deals surfacing. Um, Yet they were all based on contracts initially between two contracting parties in apparent subject agreement with each other. So does this decision help in having these contracts overturned as invalid? And for instance, I'm referring to those in the private sector, specifically between the likes of, say, a trillion and other private companies, for instance. I would say this decision was concerned primarily with fairness as one aspect of public policy. It has always been the law that a contract that is tainted with fraud or is in any any other way contrary to public policy will be struck down or will not be enforced. And uh, there's no doubt about it that a, a, a contract which is tainted with corruption is contrary to public policy and it's liable to be set aside by the court. Um, and, and Julius, just your sense, um, the level of corruption in contracts at the moment, um, do you also get a view that um, the public policy element is becoming far more prominent now when it comes to closing those uh, down, or striking down those contracts, or clauses anyway? So even I, think, yeah, I think if we go back to, to the logic of the judgment and, and saying that, there's a, that there is a two-step test uh, which essentially must be applied, which is firstly to look at whether the provisions of the contract itself um, are, are objectionable um, to such an extent that, that it, they should simply not be enforced. Um, and then secondly, if, if you pass that test, whether uh, the enforcement of the provision is in fact uh, unreasonable or, or contrary to public policy in the circumstances, um, my sense would be that if you have concluded a, a, a commercial contract which on the face of it seems regular, um, it, it would be the second part of the test that would be potentially more applicable. Um, so in other words, where one would say, look, now that we, we, we may have agreed this, this contract uh, initially and, and it was all signed in good faith, but circumstances have subsequently shown that it is in fact tainted by corruption, um, and therefore, for the counterparty in those circumstances to enforce it could well be so unconscionable that it is uh, contrary to public policy. I think there could certainly be scope for that argument, um, and one would hope to see that, yes. If I may just intercede here, I think with respect, the thrust of this judgment isn't really uh, in the context of corruption. Uh, and I think we must uh, just make that point clear. Where there is corruption, fraud, illegality, then the 
law is very easy to uh, set it aside. I think this judgment, as Gail and Julius have said, deals with two issues. One, whether the clause was unfair, judged against public policy, then it won't be upheld. But even if it is upheld, if the circumstances in which it is sought to be enforced would be against public policy, then it won't be enforced. But I don't think that the thrust of this judgment should be uh, seen in the context of the fight against corruption. There, I think, in the public sector, you'll have breach of the provisions of the Constitution, many other uh, provisions to have it set aside, and also in the private sector, contracts which are tainted by fraud or illegality won't be enforced, won't be upheld. But I don't think this judgment should be seen as a fight, uh, as a, a, a weapon in the fight against corruption. Mm. There was also a little bit of a twist in, in this particular judgment, which was specific relating to a BE entity or party, which was not able to pay the lease. Um, and, you know, basically it didn't really give reasons for its non-compliance, right? If it had given reasons for non-compliance, do you think that would have changed the outcome? Well, Quite possibly. I mean, but there would have to be quite good reasons for failing to comply with a, a valid term in the contract. For example, in the Barkhausen case, which concerned a, a time limitation clause in a short-term insurance contract, you had to bring your claim within 90 days, and the, the guy had failed to do that. The, the court then toyed with the idea of impossibility. I mean, if, he, if the evidence showed that he'd been lying in a in a coma in hospital, then quite obviously uh, that would be a very good reason for not enforcing the term of yes. the contract. But that's an extreme example, of course. Uh, your question raises a, a far more difficult issue with uh, BEE and the transformation of the economy, the fact that the person trying to get out of the contract, or the fact that... Uh, you know, accepting the termination of the contract is going to lead to the failure of an important BEE initiative. Um, is that sufficient public mm. policy factor to, to excuse the non-compliance with the contract? And the, the majority judgment says, look, you know, if you do that, effectively you're having two different laws here, one for BEE-type transactions and one for ordinary transactions. Yeah. And that would be counterproductive to the goals of the National Empowerment Fund because you would find that people would be reluctant to contract with parties in that sort of situation. Um, the other other judges saw it somewhat differently, but th that I think is a very important consideration. Mm. Now, so it was just to add to that, it's quite interesting. There were two sides to the BEE coin. Now, clearly, if there was... Um, reasons, forget about the BE side, for the non-exercise of the option and that, that could have changed the fairness um, and the proportionality test. Was the consequence so great, um, allowing for the 
cancellation or the non-renewal, but taking aside ordinary commercial considerations that wouldn't exist in a non-BE and um, just concentrating on the BE element. There the court said that's two-dimensional. If you allow it to be set up simply because the other contracting party is BE, you may be doing a great disservice to the BE initiative because many people will then be reluctant to enter into contracts of BE counterparties. So the majority uh, judgment really emphasised that part of it. If I, sorry, if I may yes. just add to that as well, I, I think it actually points to, to another, perhaps a more technical aspect, but, but which is very important, I think, to remember, which is that, that the court was, was also careful to emphasize that um, the principle of sanctity of contract um, still remains a, a cornerstone and fundamentally important, um, even though it is not the only issue within public policy. Um, but, but so here, one, one is saying, look, yes, even though um, there might have been particular circumstances uh, and, and there was the BE flavor to the transaction, that in and of itself was certainly not enough to disturb that principle. Um, so there was quite a strong emphasis, again, on saying, look, we have to still be able to rely in public discourse on our contracts being enforced unless there is such a compelling reason that that should not be the case, you know. Um. Yeah, just to, to close out um, the BEE um, component is, I mean, is there a sense that if you're now sitting as an executive, you're getting into a BEE contract, is there a case that you need to be a little bit more pertinent in how you deal with certain of the clauses? And I, and I mean, they, you know, are they, could they be perceived to be too harsh in the circumstances when it comes to potential non-performance or termination down the line? You know, it's not just BEE as such, but what is increasingly important in contract law, not only in our law but around the world, is when there is inequality between the parties, if, so if you're dealing with someone who is, in a business sense, relatively unsophisticated and you are in a far more powerful position where you can exercise contractual power over the other party, courts around the world are wary of that situation. In fact, there's, since Biedeker case, there's just been a case decided in Canada by the Supreme Court of Appeal where they've developed their doctrine of unconscionability. One of, the, one of the judges preferred to use public policy the way our court has gone, but uh, the majority spoke about unconscionability, and they made it quite clear there that it's, you know, when you get in unequal big bargaining power and the one person imposes unreasonable yeah. terms on the other, that the court might refuse to enforce it. The, the Consumer Protection Act, for instance, I'm looking at the impact of this judgment potentially on consumers, a lot of concerns over consumer rights. And when I look at, for instance, Section 40 of the CPA, it includes quite broad values. Uh, the one that I picked up was unfair tactics, where you can actually have a case, you know, for, you know, for in, in, the, in favor of a consumer when unfair tactics were used. It doesn't seem to me to fit well with this judgment, right? If I could answer that again, I, I think you've got to draw a distinction 
these days between consumer contracts and commercial contracts. And the CPA is geared for commercial, for consumer contracts. And they have there uh, a provision that the consumer is entitled to terms in the contract that are fair, just and reasonable. And they have a fairly circular definition in the act itself of when a term is unfair, they say, when it's inequitable or when it's totally one-sided. But there's a very helpful set of guidelines in the regulations about terms that are assumed until the contrary is shown to be unfair and unreasonable. So there's a whole area of law developing there, specifically in consumer contracts. And I think it is generally accepted that you want sanctity of contract to apply far more strictly to commercial contracts than to consumer contracts because of this element of inequality that I mentioned earlier. Fabulous. That explains it wonderfully. Uh, Michael, in conclusion, over to you to give us a sum of, um, and, and also feel free, uh, Julius and Dale, to jump in uh, to add to what Michael's about to say about uh, the actual implications and certain uh, practical aspects. So, Evan, I think with respect, as has been emphasized in this discussion, the principles have been, I think, now enunciated with greater certainty. So we know where public policy fits in, fairness, sanctity of contract, inequality of bargaining powers. I think all those principles have been now uh, put to bed. But the difficulty arises in applying it. And why do I say that? Because at the end of the day, the application of these principles in any contested case before the court is going to be dependent on the subjective assessment of them by the bench. And even in the Biedeke case, we saw seven to two, seven judges taking the same principles, applied it one way, and two judges, very cogent reasoning, applied it another way. So what do we as practitioners now do? And it arises in two stages. Stage one is in drafting contracts, sitting with clients. How do we evaluate whether a particular clause is going to be upheld or not? So that's the first time that the practical application of the court arises. Now, I think on this, we're starting to set up guidelines in our firm. There are some clauses that are clearly out. There are some clauses that are going to clearly be in. So there's going to be the middle gray area. And there we would tell clients, in this gray area, try and move towards the clearly good. So that's in the drafting of contracts. Now this problem of subjectivity is also going to arise at the time of an enforcement of a contract. And once again, we are going to say to clients, these are principles where even though the clause will be upheld, the enforcement of it in these circumstances is going to be problematic. And also, you are to an extent um, guessing uh, what the subjective view of judges is. 
So what I think is going to happen from now on, we as a firm and I suppose our peers in that will start building up um, studies of this is what in these cases um, actuated a court to go in this direction. And I think to try and mitigate the uncertainty of application, we're going to start doing that. So even if, if I could add to that, and, and this is obviously there, are, there would be a, um, a, a myriad, I, I think, of, of potential scenarios, you know, but maybe to, to give some sort of practical flesh to that, one of the things that one could say is that wherever a contract allows for something to be approved by a party in its discretion, one may want to say there, look, be very careful here in terms of, of showing that, that, that you've done so reasonably, you know, which you often see in contracts as well. So sort of view it as saying, if I exercise a discretion, I do so reasonably. Or, for example, if, if you're going to rely on a, a non-variation clause, um, then think about whether you have, in fact, in your uh, discussions with your counterparty, you know, uh, whether you've actually led them on to say, look, well, it's actually okay, um, and, and we agree to this variation of the agreement, or you need not pay us next week, you know, that type of thing. Um, and, and those are some of the examples where one could think, look, you, this is going to be uh, more difficult, and, and therefore make sure you keep your house in order. Um, one may even go a step further and, and say in a scenario like this one, uh, you know, we never saw the reasons um, of, of the franchisees for not uh, exercising their rights in time. But maybe if, if the counterparty wanted to be 100% certain, it should actually have reminded the lessees beforehand, have said, look, your, your, your period for, for issuing the notice is coming up. What are you going to do? You know, um, so again, we didn't get the chance to, the chance to test that here, uh, but those would certainly be the kind of things that one would, I think, have to look at from a practical perspective. And two others, even you would look at of the remedies that a party has contracted for disproportionate to the wrong. Yes. In other words, is someone who was a day late on exercising an option. Um, is the court going to enforce that, however much the contract itself may have allowed? Yeah. Another example, anything that is in the direction of self-help that ousts the court, if you do this, I can determine what's going to happen. I can sell you out. So I think principles of fairness are going to dis uh, distill and proportionality I think it's going to be a big issue. Yes, if I could come in, I would agree with that. You know, although this judgment reinforces the importance of sanctity of contract yes. in our law, there's no doubt about it now that there is a much greater focus on the need for parties to act fairly and reasonably as an aspect of public policy. Previously, there was a strong view that public policy was concerned with general harm to the general public rather than to fairness as between the parties to the contract themselves. That is clearly no longer tenable. It, it has been thrown out by this judgment and uh, although inevitably when you allow open-ended concepts like fairness and reasonableness yeah. to come into the law, you pay some price in certainty. Uh, the court has to 
find some reasonable balance between the need for certainty on the one hand and to have your law contract del delivering results that ordinary sensible people and commercial people feel to be sensible and reasonable in the circumstances where that you can't just act totally unfairly and unreasonably in your own interests without any regard to the interests of the other party to the contract. And I think, sorry Evan, my last point if I may, I do think that there will be a significant regard held to who, to the identity of the parties. So if you have two very sophisticated financial institutions, two very sophisticated commercial entities, it's going to be much harder for one of them to set up where they had significant advice, legal advice, and that at the time the contract was entered into, for a party like that to assert ex post facto that it was unfair, uh, and on enforcement as well. So I do think that one must contextualize these principles in the identity of the parties concerned, A, at the time of concluding the contract, and B, at the time of enforcing. Well, certainly an eponymous uh, decision. Gentlemen, thanks for the sage advice and the uh, valuable contributions uh, to this discussion and certainly to creating certainty for the entire commercial sector. Thanks very much for the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, thanks very much, Evan. Thanks for listening to this first exciting episode of Business Law Focus. You can find our latest podcasts on Business Day, the Financial Mail and the Business Live websites. If you like our podcasts, be sure to subscribe for free on iono.fm, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.